Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buchholz, and this is episode 216, Action Adventure in Ancient History, an interview with Brian Litvin, coming to you on Thursday, October 15th, 2020. When I read the press release for Brian's new book, The Conqueror, that just came out two days ago as this episode goes live, I was thinking, well, I don't know. I I don't really read books that are set in ancient time periods, so I'm not really sure what I want to interview somebody who writes in that time period. Will I sound like I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, I don't ever want to make anybody feel like I don't think their book is interesting. So I try to make sure that the kinds of books that I bring on, the authors of those books are things that I can at least speak about with some degree of intelligence so that uh, we both look good and that you get something good out of it. It's always about finding ways that you can get some interesting writing tips. So here's the thing. Later in the press release, when it compared, uh, not really compared his books, but he was talking about uh, Indiana Jones. And I was like, okay, you had me at Indiana Jones. What's really interesting to me is that in the movies, Indiana Jones is a history professor who goes off and does, you know, crazy, exciting things. Uh, And there is, you know, this Indiana Jones style of action, adventure and history. And I love them. I love them all, except for the last one. I pretend that one doesn't exist. But anyway, I love them. (laughs) And so what's funny to me is Brian is an ancient history professor. And I don't know if he actually goes out and does Indiana Jones style stuff. I mean, he says he's been, you know, all around the world traveling and seeing things. So who knows, but he's definitely writing that sort of thing, but in this ancient time period. So I thought, okay, totally. We have to, we have to have him on. We have to talk about this and talk about how he um, makes it all kind of come alive in this very action adventure writing style. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. It's totally interesting. Um, Definitely, you know, I just have Indiana Jones in the back of my mind while I'm talking to Brian, who, you know, could be Indiana Jones in real life. I don't know. Uh, I don't really have any other announcements for you this week, except for to keep in mind that my finish your book, small group intensive I keep saying it wrong. The Finish Your Book Intensive Group Coaching Program uh, starts again October 19th, and that will be the last time that I open it this year. It's an eight-week program, and it is what it says, all about you finishing your book and me helping you individually, as well as everybody together in a group, and then helping each other as well, which is kind of awesome. I love that. And it's a small group setting, no more than 10 or 12 people. So if you're interested in this, go to right now workshop.com forward slash writing coach. And there'll be some more information there about it. Uh, plus the link to a, a webinar. You can watch the replay when I'm discussing it in greater detail and giving you some writing tips for yourself for now, for right this minute, so that you can write now. Hence the name of my podcast website, all the things that I do right now. That's what we want to do. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so uh, let me know if you're interested. Um, send me an email, kitty at kittybuholtz.com or uh, reach out to me on Facebook Messenger or Twitter. Keep in mind, those aren't necessarily the best ways to reach me in a very quick fashion, particularly because sometimes I get stuck in 
Facebook Messenger's version of the spam filter. I don't know why, but uh, anyway, reach out. We'll talk. And um, you know what? This might be the right time of year for you to get a little bit of extra help, encouragement, um, some tips and tools and things, and find that you are getting a ton of writing done in the next eight weeks. Again, starts October 19th, last time for the year. We'll do it again next year. Uh, you can get more information on the website. Meantime, I think we need to do a little bit of interviewing Indiana Jones. All right, here's the interview with Brian. Enjoy and go write something afterwards. Today's guest is Brian Litvin. Brian is the author of the Chevice Trilogy, a fiction series, as well as several works of nonfiction. A former professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute, he earned his PhD in religious studies from the University of Virginia and his master's in historical theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He is currently an acquisitions editor for Moody Publishers. He and his wife have two adult children and live in Wheaton, Illinois. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thank you, Kitty. Good to be here. Nice to have you. I don't think I've had anybody who uh, that I knew had a PhD on my program. So my first doctor. <laughs> I'm just a regular man. <laughs> uh, you know, I keep telling my husband, please, I want to go back to school. I want to be Dr. Kitty. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's pay off those other student loans first. <laughs> that would be a good name for a veterinarian, perhaps. Oh, right. Yeah. Dr. Kitty. <laughs> I love school. Well, and obviously you took all of your schooling and you've been like just inserting it into all of your writing and you're a teacher, which all of your schooling probably went pretty far towards, you know, getting the professorship. So yep. tell us a little bit more about like, give us the, the Brian in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, you're right. That's, that's a little bit of a hybrid or like maybe bringing together two worlds that don't normally go together. So you think of kind of the academic as the person that's kind of dry and dusty. And the only way you will listen to them is because they can give you an exam yeah. that you have to take for a grade. And they're sort of, an, you know, a nerd about history or, you know, just maybe more intellectual. And you, you would associate that with one type of community. And then the, the writing or the fiction novelist would be somebody differ, different who, you know, is more in tune with kind of entertainment and what people in the real world might want. And I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to sort of bridge both worlds and be, on the one hand, an entertainer because a, a novel has to do that or people put it down. Yeah. And on the other hand, really have a lot of meat in it that would sort of pass muster as far as being accurate historically. So you're right, two, two worlds coming together for sure. <laughs> and did you, were you one of those kids who always thought that you would want to write stories someday or? Yeah, yeah, I was that kid. Yeah, so I mean, that that's the thing is that, it's like you're a kid and then you kind of grow up and you go to school and you do a master's and you do a PhD and you're sort of writing a dissertation, which is very formal. And so to get back into fiction, you kind of have to find your inner kid. You have to find your inner storyteller. But I loved those tales. I was a reader. I read the, you know, the Arthur legends and played Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of a thing for kids in the 80s to sort of be creative. And um, yeah. And, and of course, Tolkien, you know, I, right. I read Tolkien while I lived in Oxford, you know, I discovered him. In fact, he, Tolkien lived on the same street that I lived on. <gasps> oh. So yeah, small world. Not that he was alive when I was, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, you look really like, hey, good, Mr. Ryan. Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go knock on his door. Hey, what do you think? You know, but his house was a few doors down from mine. So wow. anyway, all that to say, yeah, you, you rediscover your, your inner child when you, when you write a story, for sure. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. That sounds really cool. So did you end up waiting until you're an adult to start? Like what came first, the nonfiction and the being a professor and then eventually? Yeah. So what happened? What, what decided you to open that door again? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I describe it as, and this doesn't work because I'm a man, but I, it's like you find that you have a baby in you and it just, it has to come out. It just, it's, it's there. What are you going to do? It's not an option. You just sort of have to birth the baby that is this creative impulse, which is, you know, it's a good metaphor because yeah. creativity is like fertility. It's like producing of life and it comes yeah. forth. And um, so, but yeah, you're right. I was, I was in the academic world. I, I still function in that world. And so the writing that I was doing, and I do have several nonfiction books, although they're not, a lot of it's not geared for the scholar. It's, it's more popular nonfiction about the ancient church period, about kind of the early Christians and the martyrs and kind of who they were. And, and so I had this academic career going and I had the, the popular nonfiction books. And then I guess the natural thing was, well, what about a, a story that takes that content and puts it into a novel? And I think The Conqueror is born out of that desire. Nice. Wow. Okay. So The Conqueror is set during Constantine's life, right? Right. So why don't you tell us a little bit, I mean, don't make it too easy on yourself. Write a story about something that happened 1700 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I've been living in that literature and, and not just the, the, like the books about it or like you think, well, a novelist has to go research and read somebody's book about it. But I, I've been writing those books about it and I've, <laughs> I've been living in the, the primary text, meaning I'm reading what the ancient church fathers and church mothers had to say. And you can read Constantine's own words and you can read, you know, uh, figures who are from that time and you get to the sense of how they thought and how they lived. And, and of course, when you're writing about Christianity, then you're also writing about something that people still practice today. And though, though it is 1700 years later, there's some things that, of course, don't change that are fundamental beliefs. So even there, it's a, it's a lived history. It's not like just ancient Rome where you say, well, everything of that is in ruins. Look at the Colosseum. Wasn't it great back then? But with Christian history, it's partially still alive and partially very different than it was in the fourth century. So that helps to make it more, um, more of a living story than just sort of dead history. Yeah, yeah. And um, just as a woman who reads Regency romance, I'm like, well, in some ways, I mean, it's similar. Like there was a period people lived it and you can read all about them and yeah. that country still exists and yeah. <laughs> well or you can go to bath i mean you probably have been uh, maybe oh, you haven't, not but, yet but yeah well you would love it and you can go there and you can be like i think Mrs. austin is just around the corner maybe because it has the same architecture and it still exists and there it's not in ruins yeah. so you know history it's not dead. You can make it come alive. And people are people, whether they lived in the Regency period or they lived in the ancient church or, you know, a thousand years from now, people yeah. will be the same. So yeah. something human that transcends history, I think. That's a great way of looking at it. And I don't think, I mean, I, I don't write historical partially because I always say that I don't want to have to do all that research. But then the things yeah. that I do write, I forget that the things that I'm looking up, that is research. But <laughs> yeah. But, if you um, like it, it's not like research. If you like yeah. it, like I, I read these things because I enjoy it and then yeah. I learn it and yeah. then I put it in books. All right. So we already hit our first tip for, for authors. <laughs> if, the, if you like it, you should just write it. And if yeah, you that's what they say. Yeah. 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 That's what they say. Write, write what you know, but usually what you know is what you love. 
because you're drawn to it. So mm -hmm. don't try to, like, I wouldn't try to write a, like a Western. <laughs> right. I like Westerns. I'm reading a West, I'm reading Centennial right now, which is James Michener. And it's interesting, but I don't just, I don't know how the Indians lived in the pioneers. So I wouldn't try to step into that genre or something like that. Right, right. But I do know the ancient church. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you were, um, you, you wrote this other trilogy. What period was that set in? So uh, you mean the Shavice trilogy? The one yeah. that is before? Yeah. So that one, that's an interesting thing. That's, it's kind of speculative fiction and it's not, um, it's set in the future. It's set in a future post-nuclear world. Oh, wow. Post uh, gigantic nuclear war and virus thing. Actually, it's a lot like COVID, but, but worse, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know when I wrote it. Yeah. Um, so in that story, it's a trilogy, the characters are living 400 years in the future, but society kind of collapsed and it's as if the wheel of history had sort of started over. And so they're living in Switzerland, but it's almost like a medieval culture because it got destroyed and then kind of built oh, back. Right. Right. And the premise of those is um, if you lived in this future post-nuclear world, how much would you remember about our day? And the characters actually in that story find a Bible and they say, well, what's this religion? We don't know anything about it. And yeah. it's brand new. And so in, in that way, it sort of parallels the ancient church, which is where the Romans were like, what's this religion? What is it's new? What, what do these people believe? And so right. that one's more speculative. Okay. All right. So now, now I'm beginning to see like um, some of the the patterns that are tying tying your works together. So yeah. tell us about the Conqueror. That as at the time that this is going live and people are listening to the interview for the first time, just came out this week. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. And I, it just in the mail, the book came. And for your for your video uh, listeners, I'll kind of show it here. This is the cover. You can see it on video, or if you're just listening, of course you can go look at it on Amazon or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that one, like you said before, that one is a historical novel. It's set in the early fourth century, um, the early 300s AD. So, so 300 years, let's say, after the birth of Christ, which a lot of people think, well, an early church novel, well, that will be, you'll have the Apostle Paul and Peter will be in it and like Jesus will have been recently in people's memory and it's sort of brand new and the, the book of Acts will describe the background. Not really, not for this one. You're still in the Roman Empire because it doesn't end until after the setting of this particular novel, but you're 300 years later. So the, the early Christians have a, a more of a structure, more of a theology. They're not just a kind of a simple house movement anymore, but they've grown, but it's still the ancient world. And it's in that age when persecution is ending as people often picture kind of Christians being thrown to the lions. Yeah. So those are the themes that are in this one. Wow. And um, <laughs> I don't know that much about Constantine and I'm not going to apologize. You can't know about everything, but did right. he have, uh, did he have, what do you call them? Coliseums and lions eating people and that sort of thing? Well, yeah. So just to give your listeners an, uh, a kind of a sense of it. So yes, the persecutions were still happening. In fact, the, the rise of Constantine, which is what the novel is kind of macro about, um, is the very period when there was what was called the great persecution, the worst, the worst of them. And so lots of these Christians were tortured or killed for their faith, the martyrs of the ancient church. And the most intense period of that was happening in Constantine's life. But what happened with him is he got the idea through miracles and maybe signs in the heavens. Uh, hey, 
well, I think I might actually favor this group and even convert to it. So it was Constantine who implemented the, the historical moment when the Christians to the lions came to an end. And you get what then, of course, became the pattern all through the Middle Ages and up through the Regency period and so forth, which is where you have this um, Christendom where the church is favored by the government rather than being persecuted like it was in the early Roman Empire. Okay. So Constantine was the pivotal figure, the first Christian emperor, the first to convert to that faith and therefore support it. Okay. All right. All right. That makes sense. All yeah. right. So, um, so I have to read part of your press release because this is when I was like, okay, I have to have this guy on the show. So, <laughs> All right. so this, is, this is what you wrote. Since I'm a professor, I shouldn't admit this, but my number one reader takeaway isn't learning about the ancient church. It's for the reader to have an exciting time, to be colossally entertained. I think of these books as having a lot in common with the adventure stories like Indiana Jones movies, which I love except for um, not the last one. That one does not yeah, exist. <laughs> I never saw it. Uh, and then you continue, good guys, bad guys, huge stakes, epic backdrops, the hero and heroine running hand in hand as they elude the villains and take them down. If the reader doesn't experience that thrill, I failed. And I thought, this guy is a writer in <laughs> my own heart. Yeah. So tell us, like, how, tell us more about you and this style of yeah. uh, thinking about your writing. Yeah. Thanks. I'm really glad you, you raised that, and I'm glad it touched a, a chord with you. But it doesn't surprise me because that very thing has been the essence of great stories since the beginning. So what I'm describing there under Indiana Jones is not all that different than like Andromeda chained to the rock and Perseus saves her from a sea monster or the Arthurian legends or Tristan and Isolde or, you know, or Regency-based novels, or Ivanhoe, or yeah. Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Conan the Barbarian. I mean, it's like that has been the essence of storytelling for a long, long time. Hero, heroine, epic backdrop. You know, bad guys chasing, saving, rescuing, peril. Uh, damsel in distress, which people think of negatively now, but it doesn't have to be this weird trope. It can kind of be something fairly common in the in the world today, which is that a lot of women do need uh, some kind of protector or somebody to kind of stand between them and the, and the worst elements of the world. And so th that's been the essence of storytelling. And it's exciting and it makes your heart beat fast and it makes men want to be brave and strong and it makes women rejoice to be part of that and to have their own strength and to be strong in their ways too, not in any lesser way, but perhaps in a different way. And it recognizes that there's great evil in the world. And so many novels today sort of just blur the line where the good guy is the bad guy and the bad guy is the good guy. And there's just sort of this gray mess, but that's not really how the world is. There's, there's baddies out there and there's good people who say, you know, enough, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to let you win. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's the essence of storytelling. It's exciting. Okay. So that's definitely the kind of storytelling I love. And as we both know, um, lots of people have written books that are not quite that, which is totally fine. Um, it's just not really the kind of books that I'm interested in. Um, but so tell me, you have years of history in your head. I mean, not just that period of history that's many years, but I mean, years and years that you've been studying and reading and writing about this period of history. And I think as writers, one of the biggest troubles that we can trip over sometimes is we have so much to say that's not necessarily part of the story. So tell us, how do you work with like all of this history that you have? Yeah, without ruining the story with it. Oh, you're so right. And, and 
that is such a temptation where you've learned it and you're excited about it. And then you slip into this like didactic mode where you have to sort of like the character stops and gives a little lecture for, you know, what no one would really ever do. Yeah. And it makes the reader not, you know, don't, they don't like that. So you have to resist that temptation. On the other hand, in a historical, um, you have to do some of that because that's what people dial in for. Yeah. Like, that's why they like that genre. Like they want to see how did they think? How did they, you know, who, who was the ruler at that time and what, what was their technology and what, what did they do in order to get food? And, you know, yeah. so even when Rex was running across the field and, and they were like looking through, um, well, actually I don't know what they were looking through. Like in my mind, I, I see it as being black binoculars. Oh, I know. It was just the, um, the young, the young man who had really good eyes and was, Oh yeah, that was his job oh, to right, see right. things. No yeah, yet, so. yeah, yeah. Um, but he was like, "No, there's there's the one guy, and he's got you know a shield in his right hand and uh -huh, his left hand, uh -huh. and one over his head." And in uh -huh. my mind, I'm like trying to think of all the shields that I've seen on all the movies because that's really uh -huh. the only place I've seen shields. Yeah. and yeah. maybe a couple of museums. And at first, I was thinking, "Great big metals, like how would he do that?" And then I was, then you said something about the arrows, like you said something about like not going through, but like hitting it and yeah. like staying in. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. right. Wooden shields, wooden shields. Yep. Wooden shields. So it was great the way that like you made me be able to see it without necessarily telling me like details that I honestly just don't really care about. Good. That would be my goal. And, and the way that, so, you know, for writing tips and so forth is the way to do that. Of course, the, the slogan is show, don't tell. So don't stop and have him look at his shield and think about it and talk to the person that my shield is made of wood and it's, it's <laughs> round, but in the early empire, they were rectangular, but we have moved to round shields now or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's true, but just describe the round shield and make the sound of it a, a, a thunk instead of a clang as an arrow hits it or something like that. Yeah. And um, part of that is just having it in your head because you've lived in it long enough. And then, then that reality will come out in the writing like when you really know the period like i didn't actually mean to convey anything like that i just described it i, I cared more <laughs> about the adventure in that scene where here was this one guy trying to escape the enemy line and gallop back to his own line across an empty battlefield and so he had taken he stole you know a couple of shields and one over his head and he said i, I gotta go because there's going to be a hail of arrows on me but yeah. here i go because i i got the information my boss needs my the emperor needs and i gotta get there so yeah. Focus more on the adventure, but the history's just kind of woven in, you know? All I liked it. Aqueducts, yeah. everything. I mean, just the life of the world. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. And um, we already know, like, as, as 20th and 21st century people, we know we've been told things, depending on uh, the sorts of things that we all study individually. But, like, everybody, I think, has probably learned something about that the Roman aqueducts were amazing. And then when we tried to fix them, we ruined them. Um, you know, but uh, it must've been pretty amazing to, to be able to talk about it as if it were, you know, happening in the moment. These, these things that you've probably just, I mean, except for things that are still in existence to some degree now, like everything else is just a part of history, right? There's not that much that can be seen. Well, it's not like you can surprisingly just- Surprisingly a lot. To, oh, okay. Yeah, surprisingly, a lot can be seen. Now it's in a ruined state, but that, that's part of the, the, the novels, too. I would say people might imagine, well, you know, he's sort of reading books about these things. But one of the things I did for years as a professor every summer for probably three weeks at a time was to take students on study abroad trips. Oh. And I would take them to Rome. 
and we would go see where you can see standing aqueducts. You would go see wow. the, um, you know, of course the Colosseum that's there uh, and all the different ruins. And then I would take them up through other parts of Europe and, and uh, be teaching them about ancient church history and Roman history. And then we'd get into medieval history and you go to cathedrals and you get into the Reformation and you go to, you know, John Calvin's church in Geneva and, or Luther. So these things are not just book learning for me, but I have spent so much time in Europe and in the, the ancient parts of it where you're sort of looking at that, that part of it is just, you know, the trees are still the same. You still see, you know, the cypress trees, or you still see kind of the look of the Mediterranean Sea at a certain time of the day. And so yeah. some of that comes out just not because I read it in a book, but because I had a espresso <laughs> right in that spot, you know, right. just, you know, oh, comes right. out. You know, you live in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. And the things that I see that I see now, like I keep calling, okay, I um, grew up in Michigan. So right off Lake Michigan, um, the Great Lake. Um, went to school in Philadelphia. So I'd seen the Atlantic Ocean several times. Uh, and then I lived in California for a long time. So like saw the Pacific Ocean almost every day on lots of years. Right. <laughs> so I get here and I keep wanting to say the ocean and then people are looking at me funny and I'm like, oh yeah, sorry, the sea. And it's so uh, hard for me to understand. Yeah. Like this water doesn't really move. There's not gigantic waves. Right. And though right. I can't see across it, it it's a yeah. sea, not an ocean. But yeah. it's really interesting to be yeah. here. It's different from reading about it. Yeah. And if you needed to describe it, you'd be able to talk about sounds and smells and the look of it and how you would describe the sea that you can see from Sweden would be different than you would say, describe the Atlantic ocean if you were on the coast of France or something. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, write what you know. And if you know that, write about it. And if you know ancient history, write about that. Yeah. So for listeners who are thinking, well, we're not doing a whole lot of traveling right now. I can't go to Rome or Sweden or London. <laughs> um, what would you say are some, I mean, particularly since you're somebody, I didn't realize how much that you had visited all this real history, uh, real historic sites in, in Europe. But so what would you tell someone who, who can't go, but still wants to write in you know, a setting that they can't see? What are some of the other ways that they can make it authentic to the point where um, somebody isn't sitting there reading going, I don't think this person's even been to yeah. the coast of France. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's harder. I mean, you know, the day will come when we're traveling again. So like yeah. if you were writing a European set novel, you know, like make that your vacation if you have that opportunity and privilege. Because apart from learning things, there's just something that stimulates the creativity. Um, so you know, when the day comes, do it. But to your point, it's not possible now. And, and there, there are ways that you can do that. I mean, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. It really helps to sort of see it. Um, you know, you can read about things in a book, but just, just see a pictures of it and just be able to describe it. And, um, you know, with, with YouTube, yeah, it's amazing the kind of things that like, if you want to see like, you know, reenactors of the Roman army in England, then you can like watch a battle where reenactors are doing it and they've got all the accurate period pieces and so forth. So, I mean, it's surprising, like, like actually for some of the uh, sort of martial arts type moves that are in, in this book, yeah. um, 
I looked at a lot of videos to see like, how do you throw the body? How do you sweep a foot out from, I'm not a, I'm not a guy who's into mixed martial arts or anything like that, but the character it, it does early forms of, of that same style yeah. of what is martial arts today. So YouTube is pretty interesting actually, when it comes to some of those details. Yeah. Strangely. And I would say that probably um, you might have to like set a timer for how long, because I remember well, yeah when um uh i met my husband when i was 19 and he was 20 and he was in the middle of a period where he could not get enough trebuchet <laughs> right <laughs> and youtube right. didn't exist yet yeah but there oh. was discovery and national oh, geographic yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and right. still i think if he ever saw something on youtube where there was a trebuchet he'd be like wait stop i want to see that <laughs> uh -huh. but if you've never seen it like I think I said earlier, I lived in Oxford for a while, so I remember they would have demonstrations at this castle we used to go Demos. to called Warwick Castle. Yeah, but if you've that never seen been, it, that might have been the location that was on this National yeah, Geographic or whatever it, probably it was. was. <laughs> they have a huge one at Warwick that is just just ginormous, so cool. and you sort of kind of know how they work, but until you actually see, like, oh yeah, okay, that guy cranks, and then a guy hooks it, and then they let it go, and then yeah. you're like. That's it. Okay, I can describe that now. I've yeah, seen yeah. it. So, yeah. Hey, crazy days that we live in, right? As writers. <laughs> That's right. You know, and thank goodness we do have the internet and so many yeah. things to, and also, honestly, uh, probably lots of us know someone who knows someone who lives someplace that you can yeah. just say, could you do me a favor and ask your friend if they could just like go take a picture of this or like yeah. do a 30 second video yeah. of that so I can see yeah. it. Of course, you always have a little bit of artistic license too. So yeah. you can, within the framework of what's real, you can imagine a little bit. Yeah. You know what, Brian? That is a great point. Why don't you bring that up? Because um, I know some people, particularly earlier in their writing career, they really struggle with um, trying to make sure everything is just perfect. And well, I can't yeah. do that because that person wasn't president until two years later. And I'm like, yeah. oh, that's close enough. I think you can make uh -huh. it work. But uh -huh. tell, us, tell us your thoughts on that. Well, okay, so that's where, you know, for me, I, I have to step out of my professor hat because, like, when you do a PhD, it's like, oh, I got this, this figure who's sort of lording over every comma and going to just every foot, like, I got to please this person. And so you just, accuracy is kind of footnote <laughs> everything. And, and um, you have to remember, I guess, for fiction writers, you, you have to remember, first of all, always have to remember it's a product. It's something that you have to try to convince people to get, not because they're historians and they want knowledge per se, but because they want to be entertained. Yeah. And so you have to write in a way that people will like it. And if there's if there's a great like moment or you know just, but it's not quite accurate, but it's just like you know it's it's within the the proper boundaries of accuracy. Go for it, because the story is what really counts. Right. You don't want to do weird things and you stick something way out of period. Like, I mean, you know, you wouldn't have a, well, like you said, binoculars. Like I couldn't put binoculars, you know, the lenses, grinding of glass wasn't happening until like the Renaissance period. I mean, the Romans had some little bits of glass, but they didn't have binoculars. So let's say you need somebody, this is a great example. Let's say you need somebody to see far away. You pick a young person who's kind of their, their spotter and you let him be your binoculars, you know, <laughs> and 
so that's where you stay within the period, but you find creative ways to get across what in a different, like if it was a pirate novel, I bring out his spyglass and look at it, you know, but in, in the Roman period, you just pick a young guy with eagle eyes and just let him convey the information. So, you know, stay within the boundaries, but boy, you don't want to restrict that creative urge too much because then right. you do get a very didactic novel that nobody really wants to, to read. It's yeah. 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 So how does it work for you? Do you kind of go crazy and let your 12 year old young man come out when you're in the first draft or like how, how do you keep the, the joy and the adventure and, yeah. and where do you um, start playing around with, well, I've got to make this accurate enough to be believable, but yeah. I'm going to squish this part a little bit because it makes a better story. Yeah. That's, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of, art to that and it's maybe maybe in one scene you do want to be more you know sort of accurate because people like i said they, they kind of do want some of that and other times where the flow and the pace demands action and the novel like if you're in the middle of a battle that's not what you want to talk about like <laughs> tactics of you know the romans but like before you might have the general say here's how we're going to do it and you can kind of convey the the tactics that will be used but in the midst of it you know, you want to, you want to let it go. So, um, I, I'm a planner, like not everybody, some people just, they kind of start writing with the blinking cursor and they just kind of like see what happens. Um, seat of the pants, but I, I plan it all out. Like I have this massive document, like for the novel I'm writing now, which is the third in the, the current trilogy. Uh -huh. I think the plot document where I have it scene by scene laying it out the, the, just the document saying here's what i'm going to write about i'm just telling myself is about forty thousand words which wow. would be a novel yeah <laughs> you know and so that's big enough to be a novel this is just me saying chapter one scene one have this have this make him say this here's a picture you know have them said it you know and okay chapter one scene two you know do this and so what's it all about what's its theme and i'm just saying these things to say that's what works for me then you yeah. say, well, that's restrictive, you know, like some people say, eh, that restricts my creativity. So here's what I do when I actually go to write it. I don't let that document dominate me. I just let it structure me. But, the, but once you get into it and the characters start talking, I know you've probably felt this, like, whoa, slow down. I, I got to get that yeah. down. You know, like you guys are talking too fast, but okay, I think I can keep up. And then you're kind of typing and then this is what he would say. And you know, your character and she would, oh, look at this banter. And, you know, and then there's, and sometimes you just go, you know, like, period. Oh, that's where the scene was supposed to end. I thought there'd be this little bit further. Nope, don't touch it. Yeah. They just, they just closed the scene. Whether you intended them to close the scene there or not, they decided this is where we close the scene. Yeah. And, and that's what you have to do is like within the structure, um, let the muse, let the muse speak in your ear a little bit nice and let them take the lead the characters let them take the lead sometimes yeah you just record it awesome i love that <laughs> see that that sounds just as exciting as the actual story that you're telling this whole indiana jones way of writing <laughs> it's thrilling i mean for the writer that has experienced that and, and kitty you probably have and others have it's like i think of it i'm not a surfer but i think it must be like you catch that monster wave and you are on the crest of it and you are not in control but you will just ride it and survive it. And while you're up there, you know, on the wave, you know, or riding the wave, it's, you're scared to death, 
but it's fun, exhilarating. That's such a great analogy. I never thought of it, but I'll probably never forget it now. Nature's in control. Yeah. But you're just riding along with nature and barely keeping yourself alive. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> okay. So, um, so for you, you have a planning document, then your yeah. first draft has a lot of passion and emotion yeah. and getting things out, listening to your yeah. muse. What are, how, not so much how many drafts do you do, but what do you do next? After you get to the end of the first draft, then particularly from a historical fiction perspective, like are there things that you're specifically looking for? Or You know, once I have the draft, I, I just, like once I really have like, okay, this is my draft, I'll probably take a little time away from it just to give yourself that distance so that, that you're not remembering what you wrote when you, yeah. like you're coming to it fresh. And then, um, just start reading through it and making sure that it sounds right. Or sometimes, you know, writing a long novel, it's quite a amount of time passes between chapter one's scenes and chapter 15's or scenes or chapter 10 scenes. Yeah. So um, you forget what you said before. And so you have to sort of say, oh, wait, I kind of covered that. So either I have to think this new scene is a resonance of the old scene or the new, the, first one is a predictor or I need to let one scene voice that idea and not let them both and you have to be willing to cut um, planning helps with that that that's why I plan so that you don't kind of run into that thing where you just you had three scenes that did the exact same thing right. you see that in the planning structure then then when you're writing you can just ride the wave right. and it's just a matter of smoothing it out I mean it starts messy and gets more ordered you know I think I of like it like that. a jigsaw puzzle yeah. Oh, I like that too. Do you do jigsaw puzzles at all? I do. My husband's birthday is in a couple of days and he asked me for one of his birthday presents if I would please finish the puzzle and put it away because it's been out for months. <laughs> Just the kind of thing I would, I would think as well. Yeah. Like let's close the door on this. You know how it is then, right? Because you, you, you make a framework. Yeah. When you dump it out the box, you just have it's colored just, pieces. Yeah. But then you make a framework. Then you put pieces in, then you organize. And by the end of it, it's like, mm, there's just three or four little, you know, things here, but okay, that, okay, oh, yep, yep. Oh. And then hopefully you're done and you don't have one piece that's missing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Oh, where'd that go? I vacuumed it up a week ago. <laughs> right, where's my dog? <laughs> that's so, yeah, so, right. Oh, you don't want to find that one. No, it's done. <laughs> it's done. Let it go. <laughs> uh, okay, so now, um, so now we've looked at the book from several perspectives that I love them all. And now let's look at the series. So this is your second trilogy and you're starting book three because book two has already been turned in though. It won't come out until October of next year. So tell us yes. about the trilogy. Okay. Right. So yeah, it's kind of a weird schedule, but like right now, uh, the first one is out as of the time that your listeners are listening to this, it's out. The second one, yeah, I'm, is due to the publisher. So it's, I'm almost finished with that. I'm just, I'm doing that final pieces of the jigsaw puzzle right now and I'm gonna send it to them. Uh, and then the third one is due a year from now. And I have got that plot document I was talking about, but I'm in the midst of sort of the beginning of the jigsaw puzzle there. So uh -huh. I'm, I'm juggling all three of them. Yeah. But the, the reason it's a trilogy and I don't mean why it's three, but why, why does it take uh, three novels of about 180,000 words each? 
180. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's really big. I mean, <laughs> the size, the side of it, oh. you know, it's pretty thick and it's, and the print's pretty small. So I won't try to hold that up to the camera, but it's, yeah. it's 500 something pages, 175,000, 180,000 words. So those are long. Those could be more than three novels. Why? Because of the period of Constantine is so momentous. So right. the things that I cover in the first book, which relate to anybody who studied Constantine is aware that he sees this sign in the heaven that he thinks is a cross and the star and the sun is sort of his idea of who Jesus is. And he, and he gets the idea conquer in the sign of the cross. That's the kind of Constantinian slogan, conquer in the sign of the cross. In this sign, you shall conquer. And so he marks his soldiers' shields with a cross and goes and wins this battle that kind of gives him control of Rome and launches him, you know, to further things. So that's a big story. I mean, the whole thing that leads up to that climactic battle, which is called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which is a bridge outside of Rome today. Um, oh, the bridge is still there? Well, um, Ish. the structure that was there isn't there, but yeah. absolutely what used to be the old Flaminian Way, uh, there's, there's a bridge there. It's right next to Rome's soccer stadium today and where the Olympics were held in the 60s. And you can go there today and see the spot where the battle took place. Oh so, my gosh. Okay. So some up. other time I'm going to email you saying, I'm going to Rome for vacation. Where yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can tell you, I can tell you, don't miss the catacombs. Don't miss, I, I tell you, for sure. <laughs> I got that answer. So I, so I was going to, I think it was going to just to sum up what I was saying is that, that that's just the beginning. Yeah. Like, what about the Council of Nicaea? What about the founding of St. Peter's Basilica? What about, you know, other things that happen in the catacombs? What about the canon of scripture, which sort of gets uh, figured out in this, roughly in this time period? What, what about uh, the discovery of the tomb of Christ in Jerusalem? And the mother of Constantine makes a pilgrimage in which she, you know, supposedly finds the, the fragments of the true cross. And what is today in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, uh, which is over the tomb of Christ and over Golgotha. I mean, all of that stuff is sort of coming to light. All those things, the Council of Nicaea, the Doctrine of the Trinity, one of the most essential things of the Christian faith. It's all happening in a span of like 10 or 15 years in the early fourth century. Not to mention the pivot from the persecuted Christians to the beginning of this imperial Christianity, where by, by the end of the fourth century, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire instead of Jupiter and the gods. So there's this whole sort of Jupiter is down and Jesus is up. And, you know, it's such an important part of church history. And that's why it takes three big novels to kind of tell it. Wow. Uh, in detail. So do you think that it's easier writing a trilogy um, that's based in history um, than fiction, like your um, speculative fiction, in as much as um, so many people say, darn it, if I had known what I know now writing book three, I would have changed something in book one, which is already yeah. out and I can't change it. Is it any easier when it's historical? Well, I don't, I think you're always going to, have that issue yeah. um, because any historical novel is mostly creative stuff that the author came up with. You're not really, most of the time, you're not actually recording real history. That's, that's just a framework in which you put a creative story. So you face yeah. those issues either way. And that's why I plan because when I'm writing one, I actually do know pretty much where the third one is going to be. And usually you can 
put a little hint in one, book one that like I have, well, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is in the third book, the Council of Nicaea, in the one that's out right here, the character Rex says, and he's thinking about Flavia's religion, which she's an early Christian. And he says, you know, she says she believes in one God, that she's a monotheist, but I know they have a father and then Jesus and then the Holy Spirit. So how do they have one God and yet three? I don't know. I don't even know if she knows. And it just it kind of moves on. But <laughs> yeah. of course, that's the issue of the Trinity. And that's what is worked out in the third book. So it's just a hint, you know, yeah. it's just a little flavor. So, yeah. Nice. Wow. Well, this is, this is great. I have to say that I never really thought about a lot of the things that you said, which is so fun talking to other writers, because no matter what somebody writes, I was just talking to some friends in London who, um, two of them wrote some dystopian stuff that <laughs> is oddly reflective of today, <laughs> you know, like, um, world so pandemic dystopia yeah, yeah that's pretty sad to say that 2020 is the fulfillment of all dystopian novels you know? <laughs> it's funny though it's i mean i'm sure there's always there's always some kind of little thing where um things come together in a way that you're like that's really weird yeah. but yeah. anyway but you know yeah. what better in my mind better a pandemic than zombie apocalypse i think yeah, that'd be more nuclear. difficult zombies i don't believe in but there's wackos in the world that could hit the nuclear button. So not that's that we true. want to go there, but that's <laughs> yeah. the one to worry about. Yeah. I'm afraid I'm so far gone down the fictional track that um, even though I don't believe in zombies, I still have like my husband's like, okay, our zombie apocalypse plan is if we're not together. <laughs> we meet here. And I just think it's so funny, but. <laughs> well, there's a capacity in the human heart when everyone gets desperate uh, to turn into zombies. So I don't believe in the actual zombie, but you put enough chaos into our society and you remove some of the boundaries of law and order, you'd be dealing with some zombies pretty quick. Uh, see, there's another great book or series. <laughs> uh, how I Became a Zombie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to flip the tables just for a minute. Um you have a lot of, uh, of promotion to do for this brand new book, so we're going to have to keep this a little bit short, but what is it like for you, who you're an acquisitions editor at a publisher, to be on the other side? Now you sit at both sides of the desk, yeah. probably almost every day it's both sides. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, and, and I'm doing less of the acquisition stuff than I than I have been, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that you sort of have this hat where I'm dealing with a publisher like Ravel and you know I'm wearing the hat of the author dealing with the acquisition editor <laughs> yeah. and then I take that hat off and then I uh, then I'm trying to get people to come and bring their books to Moody Publishers that I work for now yeah. Moody Publishers right now isn't doing fiction so I'm not well not, not very much so I'm not really in that mode like the books that I'm acquiring are much more in the nonfiction and Christian encouragement kind of books but still yeah you I, it helps because you're sympathetic. Like you can be sympathetic to both sides. You can really understand the author who's sitting at home going, will you take my book, you know, please, you know, and they're so nervous and they're just, because you've been there, you know, you're like, why won't this guy email me? Just tell me no if you're going to tell me no. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather know it's a no than have to wait. And so that makes me want to communicate more with my authors and the, it works both ways. So you can, you can also understand the editor's point of view. Like, you know, I get a million 
I get a million of these like thrown over the transom. Like I, I can't respond. I, we can't publish everything. I know your book is the greatest thing ever, but we just can't do it. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny to be in between in that way. Yeah. Oh, wow. So much interesting stuff, Brian. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you, Kitty. It's really been fun. I've enjoyed talking to you. You're a very <laughs> lively host and uh, you make it easy. I think you, you say your podcast is sort of a conversational thing and for sure you have that style. Oh, good. I'm glad that you're having a good time. That's, that's my goal. I want you to have fun. I want my listeners to have fun. And honestly, there's nothing better than a party where everybody's talking to each other or then people kind of stop because somebody's telling a story over here and everybody's listening. And that's kind of mm -hmm. like what I like the podcast episodes to sort of feel like. Yeah, me too. It's fun. Oh. So where can people find you and all of your books? Maybe, who knows, um, what, all, all the things that we've mentioned, what people might be interested in. Yeah, because some people might say, hey, I actually would like to learn about, you know, the ancient church, like more of a learning kind of book, uh, yeah. uh, nonfiction. So or I need guess to use that as their, as their research for whatever well, they're writing. <laughs> true. If someone were writing a, 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 not an, a fiction, they, they might want to research it. Yeah. So I'm not highly present on kind of the social media and the Twitter and all that. I probably should do more, but I'm, a, I'm old. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. But the one maybe clearinghouse would be my, my webpage, which is just my name.com. So it's Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Litfin, kind of a weird name, but L-I-T-F-I-N, Litfin, Brian Litfin.com. And if you look that up, you'll see kind of like, okay, he's, he's written these things. And it even has like kind of the academic stuff that I've ever done and the papers I've delivered at conferences and stuff like that. So if you're curious about who is this guy yeah. who's writing fiction as a professor, <laughs> Brian, Brian would probably give you there, uh, give you those, that info. Sweet. Excellent. Well, listen, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Kitty. It's been a privilege to be on your show and I wish you well and uh, hope your Swedish adventure continues for as long as it lasts. Mm -hmm.